Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Goodnight Juarez, which was written and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Tom Russell. A painter, essayist, and critically lauded singer-songwriter in the Western folk tradition, All Music Guide called Russell perhaps the finest American folk roots artist that most Americans never heard of. While Rolling Stone's John Swenson dubbed him the greatest living folk country songwriter. Russell was discovered by Grateful Dead lyricist Robert Hunter in New York in the early 1980s and launched his solo career soon after. His songs Blue Wing and Black Pearl each reached the top 40 on the Canadian country charts, while Susie Boggess took Outbound Plane, which Tom co-wrote with Nancy Griffith, to the top 10 in the U.S. The hyper-literate and historically-minded troubadour poet has found loyal devotees, including cultural icons ranging from Johnny Cash, who recorded his songs, to David Letterman, who invited Russell on his late-night show on at least five different occasions. Songs such as Gallo del Cielo and Navajo Rug have become fan favorites, while Tonight We Ride was selected by the Western Writers of America as one of the top 100 Western songs of all time. Tom's songs have been recorded by Jerry Jeff Walker, Guy Clark, Dave Alvin, Doug Somm, Joe Ely, Nancy Griffith, Iris DeMint, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, Ian Tyson, Katie Lang, and others. Mojo Magazine called his conceptual LP, The Rose of Ross Cray, the top folk album of 2015. That same year, Russell won the ASCAP Deems Taylor Award for Excellence in Music Journalism. His most recent work is Ceremonies of the Horseman, a collection of essays he has written for Ranch and Riata, the Journal of the American West. You know, people probably don't always know this, but we don't always just air the interviews in the order in which they've been recorded. Right. Sometimes one comes out a little quicker, and sometimes we'll save one for a certain moment. Yeah. Um, and this is one that, that we've kind of held on to for, for a few weeks. Right. A few months, actually. Yeah, I think this is probably interesting because, you know, even though you and I work really well together, we don't always see eye to eye on things. Right. And I think that we have delayed um, releasing this particular episode because it has prompted a pretty interesting discussion uh, between you and I right. um, in terms of our different kind of reactions to some of the issues that, that Tom brought up. Yeah. I, I think, you know, when, especially when Tom was talking about, you know, playing the game and he's talking about the Nashville game, which is a game that he does not play. Right. Um, and he sort of had a, a way he looked at it and he kind of referred to it as selling out or, or, yeah. you know, um, as someone who is still kind of in that process myself, Who's playing that game? <laughs> Who's playing that game? <laughs> um, I sort of step back and I go, well, hey, you know that I I don't feel the same way, um, and especially feeling like you know like the only good writers are the writers that aren't that aren't doing it that way, right? Um, I sort of uh, took issue with that with that approach. So right, um, I, I walked away with a little bit of a different impression of it, you know. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, I was actually uh, had a conversation with Tom on the phone uh, sometime after we did this uh, interview, but um, obviously before we aired it, and and he was asking me when we were going to air it, and he said, uh, "Did your did your co-host have, take issue with some of the things that I said?" <laughs> and and maybe maybe he went to our site and uh, saw that you are kind of more kind of doing the Nashville 
thing yeah, maybe. that that he finds uh, distasteful to some degree. But I think where you know you and I kind of parted ways on this is uh, I kind of like the that there is the defiant. Um, right. you know, the guy there's, there's gotta be the guy that's, that's taking a piss on Nashville. You well, know, that's like an important archetype we need in the yes, songwriting world. There's something to it. I mean, that's where the Christoffersons come from. Right. Um, right. that's where the Bob Dylan's came from. Right. Um, and I think as long as everybody maintains an understanding and a healthy respect for the other side of it, because, you know, if, if you want to look at somebody who's, who's sort of doing it like, you know, the co-writer way, I mean, you could actually look at almost any of our guests, Right. Up to this point, you know, most of them legends, yeah. Hall of Fame songwriters themselves, um, none of them I'd call sellouts. Right, right. Um, but I understand, you know, I understand Tom's perspective and, and hopefully he didn't walk away. You know, I'll have to listen closely to see if there's anything that I said that uh, that sounded uh, cranky. Oh, you're being like. you're being so Nashville. <laughs> You're so worried. I'm out right You're now, so worried. You're so worried about what he might have thought of you. I am selling out right now. By he by doesn't. Being he doesn't care. <laughs> he is. I mean, you know what? I like people that are opinionated, even when I don't agree with with their opinions, because uh, it it stokes the fire and it makes life exciting. Well, then you have a lot of people that you like, then, because I <laughs> I have I have been around many moments of of conflict. Uh, uh, surrounding Mr. Bomar here. The, the first one that I was around, I'll say, uh, was our freshman year of high school when we started our band. Uh-huh. And you and I couldn't agree on who was going to sing our cover of the Steve Miller song, Rockin' Me. Uh, <laughs> was I maintaining that I should sing it? Yes. I was wrong about that because <laughs> you were, uh, were, are, and always have been a better singer than than I. Um, that was so. all. That was almost the moment that ended it all. I mean, it, this whole podcast could never have happened. That's true. It could have. We could have come to blows over that. But uh, yeah, and I don't know if uh, you know this about me, Paul, but uh, I have been accused I- I- over the years of having some opinions of my own. No. I know, no. right? Does that surprise you? Completely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, for what it's worth, I, I think that it's good that uh, Tom Russell has stoked a little uh, discussion between us. And, uh, you know, let's broaden that discussion. I'd be curious to know what our what our listeners think of it. So um, yeah, if you have feedback, if you want to weigh in on the great uh, Paul Duncan, Scott Bomar debate of 2016, <laughs> then, you know, go to our website and uh, and send us a message. Tell us what you think. I'm sure everybody's, you know, nobody's tired of debates. No. Point, right? Yeah. We, uh, yeah, we, we want more debate. That's yeah. we want to be more divided in this nation at this time. Right. Decision 2016. <laughs> Here comes Tom Russell. Tom, welcome to Songcraft. Great to hear you guys. Thank you. Well, what we want to do today is uh, kind of something a little different than what we typically do, and it, I, I'm subtitling this episode, Tom Russell in 13 Songs. You have written um, so many songs and, and put out so many albums that, you know, in the time we have, all we can really do is is scratch the surface. But we've picked 13 songs that we think are um, representative of some of the different facets of your work, and, and also will give us an opportunity to talk about some of the um, some of the the development of your own art and your own songwriting process. So, um, the song that I want to start with is uh, "Grapevine," which appears on your 2005 album "Hot Walker." Friday nights down at the dance hall, we heard the Maddox boys in Rome. My papa picked the grapes and kept some My mama made that sweet blue wine 
about someday that we'd see Hollywood Drive back on up that old grapevine um, And that's a song about Dust Bowl migrants who, who fled Oklahoma for California's San Joaquin Valley. Um, and it references hearing the Maddox brothers and Rose at, at a dance hall. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, that was a group that was known as the most colorful hillbilly band in America back in the 1940s. Um, and there's this rich country music history in California that's been largely forgotten. So as someone who, who grew up in Los Angeles in the 1950s, talk about the country music influences that you experienced and, and, and the ways in which that ultimately shaped your sensibilities as a songwriter? That, that's a great question, and I grew up with a very rich and deep exposure to that form of country music, basically Bakersfield, but other things I saw on TV that I grew up watching. Uh, every Sunday, there was about six or seven hours of country music on television. Wow. Cliffy Stone's hometown jamboree comes to mind. And mm. The Collins kids were on there, Joe and Rosalie Mapis, the Maddox brothers. So yeah. I grew up on this kind of wild West Coast form of country rock. Mm. Um, I used to listen to the radio, too, at night. And I remember I discovered uh, Bob Dylan uh, in about 1961-62. At the same time, I first heard Buck Owens. Wow. on the radio, and they both really affected me forever. But I uh, thought at that time, when I heard it that one night, wow, it's some new form of hillbilly music with wow. Telecasters, which it was. Yeah. But I thought Dylan, and of course he tried to pull that off, uh, was a hillbilly too with that strange voice, you know? Mm, right. So, so I was listening to this stuff uh, quite a bit, as, as and also cowboy music that came from the West Coast and the movies, and my dad worked a little with movie people, and then my brother became a cowboy. He's older than me and uh, right. exposed me to a cowboy record, so... It's interesting. Those those things you describe would would seem to some people to be sometimes strange bedfellows, you know, cowboys and movie stars, or Buck Owens and Bob Dylan. Um, but you know, in some ways, contrast is, is what it's all about. You know, there's there's a lot of contrast on the Hot Walker album, sort of between the country music world of the San Joaquin Valley and then the character of downtown L.A. in the '50s, which you describe in the poem "Old America." I was born in the city of angels in the late 1940s, down on Hope Street near Pershing Square and Clifton's Cafeteria in the pantry and all them old strip joints on 5th and Main. You know, tonight, White Fury and her twin 44s. Charles Bukowski territory. Beat outsider America in the music that's been lost from that time, taken off the radios. You had to have been there. Um, you know, aside from the country music that you encountered, uh, growing up in uh, downtown L.A. can be kind of a sensory overload, I imagine. Do you think that that kind of influenced your observational skills as it you know, pertained to eventually writing songs? I would think so. You know, the roots of everything must lie there. Also, the border, I would have to mention. I mean, we hmm. okay, downtown L.A., uh, Skid Row. Uh, I was born in downtown L.A. Uh, on Hope Street at some hospital. When you went to a doctor or a dentist, it was always in downtown L.A., even if you lived in Inglewood, that's where everything was. Yeah. I remember guys playing guitar in Pershing Square, you know, like authentic bums, you know, and <laughs> right. you, you wouldn't see that today, but authentic old hillbilly guys. 
Yeah. And then there was the uh, gospel singing, really weird, straight-laced gospel singers in the park, you know, when uh-huh. we went into town. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the border was pretty close, uh, San Diego and then Tijuana. And I'm a big border guy. I love Mexican music, and the Mexican rock kind of invaded L.A., uh, Richie Valens, and, and guys that, that put a Mexican twist to rock. Sure. Uh, but we went to the border. We went to the bullfights when I was a kid, and I could hear music coming out of the bars. Uh, I was always transfixed by corridos and old Mexican folk music. Yeah. And, uh, when uh, when did you actually first start playing guitar? My my first good guitar was a, is I still own it. 1946 uh, Martin D18 got a bullet hole in it. That's a that's a whole other story. <laughs> About a time I worked in uh, Puerto Rico in a carnival on a. A song came out of that called The Road to Buy a Moment. I wasn't holding the guitar at the time. Jeez. I left it. <laughs> Thank Fortunately. God, yeah. I got that guitar in uh, the late 60s, uh, probably 67, 66. But my brother had a, uh, my brother Pat, he had a Tijuana gut string guitar probably in the late 50s. And couldn't carry a tune very well. So I kind of appropriated the guitar and <laughs> started learning chords. So probably I played guitar 1958-59 when I was starting in high school. And okay. the folk thing was just kind of taking off in L.A. I would go sneak into folk clubs. and Later I'd go into the Ash Grove like Dave Alvin did and see all the blues guys. So right. I would say late 50s, early 60s, I was playing a little bit. Hmm. And now, even though you were playing and, and listening and learning, you didn't really become a professional musician and songwriter right away, which brings us to the second song on our list, Criminology, from your 2009 album, Blood and Candle Smoke. I was performing at the club Zanzibar In the neon world of lies and gun Oh, excuse me if I'm boring you, dear listener Except my humble apology There's a lot of autobiography in that song, um, but for those who may not be familiar with your story, can you briefly take us from your college years up to the point where you decided that you were going to make music your profession? Yeah, you're, you're hitting everything perfectly because, of course, <laughs> I was over in Nigeria during the Biafran War teaching criminology because student teaching criminology might agree master's degree from University of California, Santa Barbara, was in the sociology of law and criminology. Uh-huh. I went over there and, and did a lot of odd stuff, learned how to carve wood. I had my Martin guitar with me. I played more guitar, really, than I taught, and I got really disenchanted with the academic life, and I made the decision to become a songwriter. I didn't have the guts to do it until then. and So that's kind of what the song Criminology is about. I landed back in the U.S. and went up to Vancouver to visit friends, and it was there that uh, I started playing in uh, Skid Row bars, you know, huh. at the bottom rung of the music business. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So you really launched your the beginning of your professional career from Canada then? Yeah, you know, I've been very influenced by Ian and Sylvia Tyson and Canadian songwriters. I, they were my biggest influence. Ian came out of those same bars 
10 or 15 years before I did. So there's some notorious bars down there to this day on East Hastings Street. And uh, I went into a club and saw this band working in the afternoon playing Hank Williams and Graham Parsons. I said, man, that's what I want to do. So three or four months later, I had a band, and we did that and paid our dues, topless bars, bottomless bars, violent places. I did it until 74. I moved to Austin when that scene was first happening there. Right. Well, I know you teamed up with uh, Patricia Harden, and the two of you made a couple of albums together, uh, Ring of Bone in 1976 and Wax Museum uh, a couple years later. Um, But after you guys split up, you kind of dropped out of music for a while and, and ended up in New York City to focus on being a novelist. Um, but you had this song, uh, Gallo del Cielo, which is the next song on the list that we want to talk about. All of my days, I'm thinking of you now in San Antonio. I have $27 and the good luck of your picture framed in gold. Try to put it all on the fighting spurs of Gallo del Cielo. And then I'll return to buy the land that Via stole from father long ago. That's uh, that's a song that has become one of your classics, kind of a, a staple of your catalog. Um, talk a little bit about that song and, and how it ended up ultimately kind of pulling you back into the music world. That, that was a life changer, and I don't know where it came from. because I remember writing it in a garage in uh, Mountain View, California, and... Uh, I wrote it very quickly. I must have been channeling old Mexican corridos hmm. and long story songs. I was probably absorbing all that and uh, the little bit of a cockfighting scene in Nathaniel West's Day of the Locust. This just pops into my mind. Guys are fighting cocks up in the Hollywood Hills, and there was some really good color in that. And so I think... It, and then the, the last thing was uh, I've traveled into Mexico quite a bit back then, and I overheard, or I had a guy that owned a hotel in Creel up in the Copper Canyon tell me a bunch of wild Pancho Villa stories, how mm. he'd ride into the ranches during the Revolution and pick out the best-looking woman and then offer to marry her on the spot, and if <laughs> her father wasn't going for it, he'd take the, the father's land, and then he'd ride down the road and do it with some other woman, you know. Just, yeah, right. Yeah, a notorious womanizer. So all those kind of elements filtered into this song about a guy uh, taking, uh, stealing a fighting rooster and swimming the river and going up the California coast and winning a bunch of money so he could buy back his family land that Via had stolen. But anyway, I'll try to wrap the question up with the famous taxi story. I'm up down to almost no money, and uh, I start driving cab, probably 80, 81, 1981. It was a, the old New York was pretty rough still then, and it wasn't a very safe job. And, and you know, 10 cups of coffee and lots of fear and uh, drug dealers late at night. But anyway, out in Far Rockaway one night, I saw in a theater, Marquis Robert Hunter, the Grateful Dead lyricist, was performing solo, and I thought, wow, cool. Later on, I get a call from the club to pick somebody up, and lo and behold, it's Hunter. Hmm. So he gets in the cab, and we start chatting away, and of course I say, uh, 
foolishly in a way I say I'm a songwriter too and I expect him to say yeah okay just take me to the motel kid <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's probably what I would have said <laughs> he, here's this point in my life that turned my life around here's this guy that says oh yeah let me hear one of your songs so a cappella, I start uh, Gallo del Cielo which I had finished a couple years before I sang it it's a seven minute song he says holy shit you wrote that song and I go yeah he goes sing it again so by now the cab is up to 150 bucks, you know, <laughs> right. and we're not even near the motel. We're going past it. He goes, "You have a tape of that song?" You go, "Yeah, back at the house near where I picked you up." He goes, "Let's go back and get it." He says, wow. "I'm I'm going to play it for the dead, and I'm going to play it for the new writers. They should definitely do it." Wow. So I go, "Wow!" I go back to the house, rumble under the bed, get a cassette, give it to him. Drop him off, he said, I'll talk to you soon. And I, I, I go, I'm glowing. And I thought, that's a great story I'll always have, but I'll never hear from him again. I know how this business works. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, he calls me up. Uh, he's coming to town in three or four weeks, and he wants me to come to the show. And I said, yeah, great. Bitter. I think it was the bitter end down in the village. He passed forward that night. I'm in his dressing room drinking some of his whiskey, thinking, man. What a great guy. Right. And he gets out on stage. He's got a packed audience of deadheads, kind of. And halfway through the show, he starts talking about my song, Guy Del Cielo, how it blew him away with this guy that drives a cab. And I'm just sitting there going, yeah. <laughs> and then he says, uh, forget talking about it. Fuck it. Let's get this guy up here. He's right down there. <laughs> And I just kind of froze, because I re hadn't really played much for six, seven months. And it's a pretty demanding song. Uh, right. you got to have your head inside the story uh, as it progresses. So, right. But I got on stage, he hands me the guitar and splits. And I look out <laughs> at this audience of deadheads, man, I thought, man, this is the turning point in your life. You either pull right. this off, or it's back to the toilet. As, as Bukowski says, Back to the factories if they'll have me. You know? <laughs> so uh, I sing it, and it goes over great. And I go, man. That's... And I look around to give Hunter his guitar back, and he's, he's nowhere to be seen. He's in the dressing room <laughs> drinking. <laughs> right. So some, some woman says, sing another one, we love you. Uh, deadhead vibe. So I sang two more songs and really pulled them off. He comes back on stage grinning says, see? I knew you could do it. Wow. And it turned my life around, and then he comes back a month later and plays the Lone Star and hires me to open for him. So wow. it was it was a turning point in my life, and it got me back into the music business. Um, in 1984, you released your debut solo album, Hard on a Sleeve, which opened with uh, One and One, a duet with Sean Colvin several years before her own debut album. and included uh, Gallo del Cielo and St. Olive's Gate and a ton of other uh, great original songs. Um, and then your next record has some real highlights with songs like U.S. Steel and the radio-friendly uh, Home Before Dark. Um, but I want to kind of focus in on your third album, Poor Man's Dream, um, where your songwriting really takes center stage. And so many of the songs on that record are ones that have become staples of your catalog, uh, like Walking on the Moon, um, Spanish Burgundy, or, or Blue Wing. Um, but the song that I really want to uh, single out from that record is Navajo Rug. Boy, should have seen her coming through the smoke, a dragon that Navajo rug. 
Um, your first couple of albums were filled primarily with solo compositions with a, a few collaborations with Carl Browse thrown in there. Um, but that kind of changed with Poor Man's Dream. Uh, co-writers like Katie Moffat and, and Nancy Griffith began to appear, as well as Ian Tyson, uh, with whom you wrote Navajo Rug. Um, you had mentioned that, that Ian had been um, such a big influence on you and, and had even been um, you know, one of the reasons that you, you headed for Canada. Um, talk about how you actually wound up hooking up with him and, and how that song came together. 70, 79, 80, when I wrote the song, I somehow got his address. He wasn't actively, he was posting in Sylvia. They broke up, he moved west, uh, eventually bought a ranch and got back into music. Uh, I somehow got found a contact and sent him Guy with LCALO, and he, he flipped over and said, if I ever get another record deal or put out another record, I'll do the song. Mm-hmm. Never really met him in person besides seeing him at the Ashgrove in L.A., but uh, I said, great, that means a lot. Well, he lands a record deal with CBS to do a couple cowboy records and kind of turn the genre around. A lot of traditional songs. Right. I think it was recorded at his ranch, and uh, he records Guy Del Cielo. Uh, it was a good version. He comes to New York about six months later and invites me to a gig, private gig he had, and uh, um, we hung out. I, I lived in a place called I called the Bunker, a storefront in Brooklyn, really down to down on the street, boarded over storefront, and he. Uh, he came over in a cab and scared the hell out of me because he got out two, two blocks too soon in a really rough area and called me to go get him. <laughs> this guy wearing a cowboy hat and boots Perfect. in the middle of the Puerto Rican ghetto <laughs> with a guitar. But he, we, we saved him and brought him over and we locked the door and I had a couple balls of red wine in there. And we bounced a few ideas around. It was just such a treat for me because here's my, it's like, for me it was like sitting two feet away from Bob Dylan talking mm. about songwriting for three hours. And, uh, yeah. He said, what do you got going? And I said, I got a couple lyrics about a couple making love on a Navajo rug. And he goes, that's great. Mm. He goes, what do you got? Just give them to me. I'll take a look at it later. I put, he put it in his guitar case. And again, it was one of those moments I thought, yeah, I don't know. Nothing, nothing might happen or if it does. So about, uh, Four days later, he called me from a motel. He said, I finished that song. It's killer. Mm-hmm. I think he sang it to me over the phone, and he had he had uh, added the chorus, I, 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 Katie, a real hooky chorus, and he's, he's a great melody writer. He's right. a great singer, obviously. And he, he really finished it up great. And uh, fast forward, it became a hit song for him in Canada, and really... On his third or fourth cowboy record, he turned his career around. The, the record was called Cowboyography, and that, that to me, we had two or three songs on it. That was the record that jump-started the cowboy movement, hmm. yeah. with the exception of Michael Martin Murphy, who was also doing stuff around then. But, uh, yeah, in, in, a, in a bigger sense, um, 
how the experience of co-writing for you is, is different than you know than than writing alone? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I'm not big these days. I'm not real big on co-writing. I've had a bit of success with it with Nancy Griffith and Gretchen Peters and Ian, but it is very different because the great big word compromise comes in. Yeah. It's almost like two people trying to paint a canvas. It's almost an impossible dream of some sort, yet it can be done if, like me, I'm looking for somebody who who has a different take on melody and structure, mm. and then you're a little burnt out, you want to go somewhere else. Uh, Ian taught me a lot there. What a guy like Ian does, and here's a good songwriter trick that he showed me, not only is he a great reader, he's very big on reading everything. Right. He subscribes to the New Yorker and he reads he reads the Thesaurus and the Bartlett's book of quotations <laughs> and uh, you know, he's got a lot of reference points to keep his mind out there but uh, he also to this day practices with his guitar to grooves that are a little bit outside of his culture like he, he's very big on Mark Knopfler so Ian will play along with a lot of Knopflers, say, and come up with a whole different set of chord structures. So I've learned a lot of, of good songwriting tricks. And, of course, it can be done, you know, uh, but sometimes it gets to be hard work and a little bit of compromise. But yeah, it's yeah. paid off for me on about ten songs. Yeah, sure. Well, we want to touch on the song Veterans Day, which is also on that Poor Man's Dream album, and that's a song that was later covered by Johnny Cash. It's Veterans Day And the skies are gray Leave your uniforms home, boys There ain't gonna be a parade But we'll fill up a glass for the ones who didn't make it through Yeah And leave a light in the window tonight For Jimmy McGrew Most of the people who have covered your songs are highly respected writers in their own right. Um, tell us how Johnny came to be a fan of yours and what it means for you to get recognition from other songwriters. Well, that was a big one. That was a huge one because I've always been a huge Johnny Cash fan. Somebody, uh, he was on, and he uh, he wasn't on CBS at the time. He had done a couple records on Mercury. You know, it was when his career kind of went down, when Nashville changed radically. He was in that kind of mode, and somebody played him. A friend of mine, a lawyer that was at CBS, played him my poor man's dream version of uh, Blue Wing and Veterans Day. And he really got into it. Uh, he said back through the lawyers, you know, I'm going to record both of these. Uh, they're tremendous songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, fast forward, I think, I, I don't know about my time frame, but Switzerland, a year later or two, I, I was playing Europe by this time, and uh, he was playing the same festival I did. And uh, that night at the festival... Uh, Again, I'm out in the audience, I've done my set, I'm drinking a beer or something, and Johnny's closing his show with the Carter family, he had about 12 people on stage, he goes, let's get Tom Russell up here. 
<laughs> about like the Robert Hunter experience time 10. And uh, I go, what the hell? People are pushing me up there. And uh, he said, come over here, Tom. And he's standing me. He starts uh, Peace in the Valley. And, uh, you know, people are taking our picture, and it's in one of my records. But uh, he turns to me right before the last verse and says, take it, Tom. <laughs> nice. And I thought, holy shit. I had to turn to him and say, I don't know it, Johnny. <laughs> oh, man. It's this weird verse about the lion lying down with the lamb, and it's this Old Testament-type uh, lyric, and he goes, I'll sing it in your ear. And <laughs> wow. he, he sang it in my ear, chillingly, and it came out of my mouth and sounding like I was a Johnny Cashman triloquist. <laughs> eventually, the next year, uh, recorded Veterans Day, and they also said he... Recorded Blue Wing, but it's never surfaced. And the last time I saw him, he was looking at me across a parking lot in Switzerland, about 50 yards away. And he turned and yelled at me, keep on writing them, Tom. Boom. His head goes down into the car the last time I saw him. Wow. Well, you mentioned Blue Wing, which um, is a song that uh, Dave Alvin has recorded. Uh, And the the next song, actually, that I want to ask you about is... Haley's Comet, which is a song that you co-wrote with Dave Alvin that appeared on the 1991 album Hurricane Season. There was no you know, kind of offbeat song about Bill Haley. Um, and you've done so many songs about famous people, um, you know, like the the kid from Spavanaugh about Mickey Mantle or uh, Hank and Audrey about Hank Williams and his wife. And there's uh, William Faulkner in Hollywood. There's uh, Jack Johnson about the boxer, uh, as well as uh, Muhammad Ali, Nina Simone. I'm, I'm sure I'm probably leaving some out. Um, but what do you think as a songwriter draws you to kind of explore these important cultural figures in your songs? I I guess I never really thought about it. Yeah, of course I wrote a lot of songs about famous people. If a certain hook line fascinates me, it leads me into their story, and then I tell it kind of colored from a Tom Russell angle, which is oftentimes dark or darkly humorous sort of maybe similar to the way Randy Newman or Zevon might write something. But say with Mickey Mantle, it was that line when he was dying where he said, uh, if I'd have known I was going to live this long, I'd have taken better care of myself. (laughs) I thought, man, that's a tremendously great American poetic line. So I built the song about that. Uh, Sterling Hayden, the same thing. It was was always a hook that led me into somebody's story. Staying with that same theme but taking it another step um the next song on our list is manzanar which appeared on the 1992 album box of visions and there's also a an awesome acoustic version of that song on your uh, long way around record from 1997 and we dream of apple blossoms waving free beneath the stars till we wake in the desert the prisoners of Monzonar 
I actually grew up in, in Nashville, and I never even heard of the World War II-era Japanese internment camps until I moved to the West Coast as an adult, um, which kind of amazes me. Uh, I didn't learn about it in school. Um, but you have, have written about various historical characters and episodes far beyond just the, the songs we've mentioned about specific um, cultural figures, but you, you've, you've tackled some pretty big um, historical episodes um, with a particular emphasis, of course, on the West. Um, what does your approach to songwriting have in common with, say, uh, journalism or, or historical preservation? It's a tough question. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in American history. I'm deeply interested in American music, not as a songwriter, but, but as a fan and as a guy that writes journalism on the side to see what I really think and where that song came from and try to understand the magic and take it forward. But, uh, there is some degree of relationship between history and journalism and literature and songwriting and uh, God. I mean, Dylan was as much influenced by the beats, beat literature, yeah, uh, poetry, as he was Woody Guthrie. So you, there has to be a strong link, I think, between what you're reading what you read in school, what really moved you, and then I think really good songwriters carry that into their writing. But mm. the warning flag, I think, with is getting too conceptual. This is coming from somebody who just released a 52-track right. conceptual <laughs> record. Right. The, the concept can never outweigh the content. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It, it's got to work as a piece of art. I mean, I'm living in Santa Fe where there's so many conceptual artists and most of it doesn't work for me. But mm. if you have to tell people, which I try not to do too much with my new record, what you were intending, uh, it stinks then. They have to listen and absorb it and a piece of art will work or it won't work for them. But to, to answer your original question, yeah, it's linked with history and stories and literature and uh, and also linked to the great deep history of our roots music, as I am deeply um, into Amer the roots of American music and trying to bring that into the forefront. And I don't think a lot of young writers are hip to that. I think yeah, that. yeah. Well, and you are particularly known for your cowboy and Western-themed material, you know, and that's, that's on full display on albums like... 1991's Cowboy Real and 2004's Indians, Cowboys, Horses, Dogs, which includes Tonight We Ride. When Jackie wasn't looking, I stole his fine spade bit. It was tied upon his stallion, so I rode away on it. To the wild Chihuahuan desert, so dry you couldn't spit. Tonight we ride, you bastards dear. We'll kill the wild Apache for the bounty on his hair. Then we'll ride into Durango, climb up the whorehouse stairs. Tonight we ride. Tonight we now ride. that song was selected by the Western Writers of America as one of the top 100 Western songs of all time. Um, what first drew you to cowboy songs, and why do you think that's been such a consistent theme in your work? Well, that's a good question. I, I don't consider myself a full-time cowboy songwriter like Ian Tyson. But I grew up around it. And, and here's the interesting thing. 
My brother had cowboy music. He had tons of LPs, Tex Ritter, uh, some of the Johnny Cash cowboy stuff, uh, Mexican music, bullfight music. That influenced me, and he became a cowboy. I, I became a guy who wrote about him. But uh, but my mother, meanwhile, in the main house, is listening to Rodgers and Hammerstein and Broadway musicals, some of them centered in the West, which, is, again, goes back to my new record. As great as those people were, Tin Pan Alley, East Coast songwriters, it was all written from East Coast people. They weren't really that hip. They were great songwriters, but so in the new record, I try to write more authentically about the West. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's just part of, uh, it's just been part of what I do because I grew up around, my, my father was an Iowa horse trader who became a building contractor in Inglewood, where you're calling from, and built some of the modern houses there in the 50s mm, yeah. before he gambled away all his money. But mm. uh, that Tonight We Ride, which I actually did on Letterman. Letterman was a big fan of that song. Mm. And uh, later on, Dave flew, us, flew me out with a band near his ranch in Montana to play in a free concert for... The town, just as a thank you oh, cool. thing. Wow. He said something like to Paul Schaefer on the air, Paul, this song makes you want to go out and rob a liquor store in <laughs> Montana. And yeah. I wrote it kind of up in the mountains. There's this group of writers called the Rancho Vistadores in California, and they go on a big one-week trail ride every year, and there's a lot of drinking going on. Right. I think I almost went over into a ditch with some guy's Million dollar horse, and I, probably, <laughs> I had a bottle of tequila, probably showing off. And I just remember yelling out, "Don't worry, boys, tonight we ride." <laughs> and it's become kind of an anthem. You know, I have to do it almost every night. That's great. Yeah. Well, and I mean, another one of the big themes that you explore, in addition to the American West, is uh, Mexico. Um, that features very prominently in your music, uh, including songs such as the beautiful Goodnight Juarez from the 2011 album Masabi, which is the, the ninth song on our list. Our Lady of the Seven Sorrows Just caught the last bus out She said seven sorrows used to fit the bill But I need ten thousand now Mariachi horns are silent The guitars don't make a sound The children have all disappeared Or they're hiding underground I know you moved to El Paso in the late 1990s where you lived for, for many years and your 2001 album Borderland explored that geographical space with some, some amazing songs such as uh, when Sinatra played Juarez. <laughs> Um, talk about your relationship with Juarez and in what ways a sense of place influences your work. Very, de That's a good question. And very definitely my writing changed when I moved from New York in 97 to El Paso and bought a hacienda on three acres, uh, this 1930 house with a lot of history to it. it another door opened for me. Because here I was, El Paso is a pretty isolated city most people have never explored you know right. when i got there uh this was pre-drug war time you could walk across the border for 15 cents and there were dozens and dozens of great bars 
And the bullfight scene was very strong. And I, uh, I was interested in that, probably partly from Hemingway and partly from wondering what the hell it was all about. And <laughs> I found out the hard way, you know. I went to amateur bullfight school in Mexico and Spain a couple of times. This is just bloodless, you know, messing around with aggressive small cattle sure. and learning the history. So I was mining this all the time, and it was uh, getting into my songs. I loved it. It was a new door, as I say. Met a guy named Tommy Gabriel, who used to play piano in the old days in Juarez in the 40s. The high end of that deal, where uh, Sinatra played, a Kingston Trio played there later. Mm. Fast forward about 10 or 12 years, all that went away when the guns started going off. Juarez became, as I say in the song, you mentioned uh, Goodnight Juarez. Juarez became the murder capital of the world for about eight years. You know, I think mm. 30,000 people died mm. in Juarez. Yeah. Meanwhile, it was safe right across the border five minutes away because the, uh, the drug uh, cartels weren't dumb enough to alienate, to start a war on the border because we were buying the drugs and uh, to this day. It goes on, but Juarez really went down, it went away, they tore the bullring down, they made a Walmart. The spiritual heart of the border kind of is gone, and a lot of well-to-do Mexican Mexicans moved across legally and bought houses. El Paso itself kind of got paved over, too, so the heart went out of it, and I felt I'd written it up, but I really, I really wrote quite a bit about it for about 10 years. Yeah. Interesting. You know, let's talk a little bit about The Man from God Knows Where, um, from your critically acclaimed 1999 concept album of the same name. My ghost rose up in the peat fire smoke Toward the rising of the moon Now as I drift through your villages All the maidens stop and stare There goes old Tom the Vagabond, he's the man from God knows where. There's a line in that song that says, Cursed are we who forget the past, and that seems to be a driving force in a lot of your writing. That album is really a song cycle about immigrants and ancestors. It incorporates the music of the American West as well as traditional Irish and Norwegian music. When, when you do a project like that, it's an album that is essentially, it's like the musical version of historical fiction. What kind of research goes into a project like that? Oh, a tremendous amount, um, especially with the new record. The, thir- the, the three records I consider kind of a trilogy are The Man from God Knows Where, Hot Walker, and The Current Rose of Rossgrave. Mm. But that record, The Man from God, which is probably my most recognized record to this day, a lot of it was based on the true history of my family, my uh, great-great-great-grandfather, Patrick Russell, who came from Ireland in the 1880s, settled in Iowa, kind of a horse trader, uh, lawman kind of guy. And then uh, um, on the other side, uh, somewhere on the other side of the family, Ambrose Larson came from Norway in 1880 and settled in Wisconsin. And Patrick Russell, particularly before he died, made a statement uh, about his life that was recorded and given over into family history that I could read. I got a lot of stuff out of that because Mm. Civil War veterans would come up through his property and uh, 
lots of different stuff about the changing America back in the, you know, in the 1880s, 1890s, and uh, and then I used that as a basis, and then uh, there's also several songs about my father. Fast forward near the end of the record, coming west as a lot of people did to make make their fortune and hitting hitting the wall because he started buying uh, race horses and eventually going to jail for a few months, just, hmm. just losing his money and re- investing in the wrong places. But yeah. uh, that's on the record. So a lot of it was based on family history, and, and the rest I kind of made up. The, yeah. right. I, I filled in the edges, and the whole thing was recorded live in a, in a Norway on a historic fjord, and we got to use a bunch of traditional Norwegian and Irish musicians. That, that was a very special record yeah. uh, to be able to do, you know, yeah. it was very yeah. expensive. Yeah. yeah. Well, the next song I want to ask about is The Pugilist at 59, which appeared on your 2006 album Love and Fear. A handful of vitamins dropped them on the floor. My ex girlfriends are laughing from the icebox door. I put their photos up there. Yeah, we talk all the time. But they ain't talking back now. The Pugilist is 59. All Music called that track, quote, the best of the American short story tradition in song form. And, you know, it's really this meditation on aging, uh, lost relationships, personal reflection, and that whole album really is is kind of a shift away from the historically-minded storyteller mode of writing toward a more, um, I guess you would say, confessional or, or introspective approach. Um, and in terms of your own artistic evolution, do you feel like there was a, a shift in your writing style? And if, if you do, then what would you attribute that to? Bad relationships. <laughs> I mean, here prior to that, I hadn't. I wrote some pretty good love songs like Walking on the Moon with Katie Moffat and Outbound Playing with Nancy Griffiths, but I didn't get real introspective or personal, you know, until Love and Fear. You know, I kind of got kicked in the teeth a few times, and uh, until I met my, the love of my life, my, my wife, who I met in Switzerland, who I've been with about 12 years, I was really at that point settling on living alone, at least for a couple of years, and trying to take a fresh look at love, which I think a lot of people should do, uh, especially men, in the second part of their life. Uh, can't stay in the same box your whole life. You know, yeah, you want yeah. Enjoy the second part. I, I was there with love and fear. And what I did, I, I, I talked to as many women as I could. Hmm. You know, uh, saying, what the hell? What, what the hell happened with that? What the... And I got a lot of great stuff that men don't usually want to hear. You know, hmm. that, well, that woman pulls the plug, she pulls the plug. Yeah. Hmm. So this old boxer at 59 still has a lot to learn. One of the main problems with men is they don't know how to listen. So all this was on love of fear. It was a new door to go through and, and put these things in song. Right, right. Yeah. Well, and you you mentioned you hadn't written a lot of of you know love songs, so to speak, earlier. But you one of the exceptions that you mentioned was Outbound Plane, um, which is actually the next song on our list. Um, you know, I, I know that you wrote that with with Nancy Griffith, and 
she recorded it on her 1988 album, uh, Little Love Affairs. And then you cut your own version on the Poor Man's Dream album from 1990. Um but then it was covered by Susie Boggess, who actually made it a top 10 country hit in 1992. It's obvious that you are someone who follows your own artistic heart in a very uh, uncalculating way. Um, But when a songwriter sort of lucks into a hit, uh, is there any lure to that success that can draw your focus um, away to then trying to duplicate that success? And I guess in other words, what I'm asking is, is, can a big commercial success actually pollute the songwriting well, and is that temptation something that you have ever dealt with at all? No, but it's a really good question because I think it's polluted much of Nashville these days, and there's a lot of great writers that went to Nashville, I can point out it's been pretty soundly ignored, Dan Penn, John Prine, Guy Clark, I could tell you stories, I know them all, and I could tell you stories about that, and a lot of great music came out of Nashville, you know, and I've written with pretty top songwriters like Pat Alger and Gretchen Peters. But that point of having a commercial success and trying to follow it up, I, I usually say to people, the line that you have to stand in to sell out is too long. <laughs> I've got to live with the fact that, I, you know, I'm an outsider. I always mm. have been. I I don't really have a lot of friends or a big social life. We don't own a television. I paint, I write, and I have a great wife who manages my career. I never could fit into that scene. And when that song hit, uh, staying in Nancy's front room, I've known Nancy since she's 15. She used to open for me. (laughs) I noticed one night in the Royal Albert Hall in front of 10,000 people, I was opening for her. (laughs) Right. Huge transition huge in Europe when she came in and said hey help me finish this song I kind of knocked off a little bit of the chorus and Susie Boggess really nailed it the production was nailed Hmm. now here's Susie Boggess she had a hit there she had a hit with Ian Tyson someday soon but once you can't follow that up either as a writer or an artist especially in Nashville you're gone Hmm. and it's back to house concerts, and uh, Indian casinos. <laughs> uh, we, we have a very short memory in this, uh, in this country, and, and I write about that a lot. You know, mm, God yeah. bless Susie, God bless Nancy, but Nancy isn't as out there anymore, and Susie's out there just trying to make a living because she wasn't a writer, essentially. Yeah. So my answer is, was I ever tempted to plug into that? Hell no. <laughs> and, and I'm not dumping... I just think if you get trapped in that thing of co-writing too much and playing the game and giving and saying, oh, there's a lot of great songwriters out here, I think that in a lot of ways has hurt songwriting, you know? Mm-hmm. We need that, but we also need the Dillons and the Guy Clarks. We need a, a balanced approach, and I don't think we need lots of conferences or South by Southwest. I don't think the great writers are going to come out of it. Mm. Yeah, gonna, yeah. 
they're going to happen, and then they're going to pull the whole business with it. Yeah, one of the songs that we uh, are are not diving into that I would encourage people to go listen to is the death of Jimmy Martin. I think that'll give uh, people some insight into some of your uh, your thoughts on the on the Nashville machine. <laughs> it's pretty radical, tongue in cheek. Yeah. Sure, but yeah. I'm at a point my wife agrees where I can say whatever the hell I want. It's not gonna <laughs> it's not gonna alter my career. No Nashville person ever came up to me and said I don't agree with you. You got to start being truthful, or things aren't going to change. You can't, you can't resort to, as I've done. May God forbid, do songwriting workshops, workshops, and take people's money. You got to, mm. we got to encourage people to find their own voice and go back to Des Moines or whatever. Yeah, yeah. The last song that we want to talk about is "The Rose of Ross Cray," um, which is the title track from your 2015 album. Now I can see. Actually, calling the Rose of Ross Cray an album is probably kind of an insufficient description. I mean, it's really a really ambitious cowboy folk opera and kind of in the old frontier musical tradition. It's got a wide cast of characters. It's, it's epic in scope. Um, tell us about where the idea came from for this project and reflect a bit on the process of putting that all together. Oh, 30 years ago, um, I started hanging out with my brother and his second wife in a historic Spanish land grant ranch in central California near Bakersfield. And, uh, she came from eight generations of ranchers back to Texas. Fast forward, my brother, who's pretty outlaw type, runs off with a local waitress and uh, leaves her there on a 3,000-acre ranch, which she owned. Uh, it's a ranch alone. And this is a woman who shot two bears in her kitchen in the last 25 years. Wow. 180 miles north of Los Angeles. So she's living really... In the Old West, I have transcripts of her story and the way they talked and the traditional cowboy songs they loved. Mm. And I thought, you know, there's an opera here that's very different from Oklahoma, yeah, Calamity right. Jane, Annie Get Your Gun, all of which I loved, Irving Berlin, uh, Rogers and Hammerstein, but again, a real East Coast view of the West and kind of corny. And I wrote... Uh, that song you mentioned, the title track, The Rose of Roscray, with Gretchen Peter, Peters and her husband Barry Walsh wrote the melody, a great Irish-infused melody. Then I had the plot line for the original songs, which was A Kid Leaves Ireland in the 1880s, very much like my people. His girlfriend's father kicks him out of Roscray, and he vows to go to America for revenge. He becomes a cowboy. It becomes very much like Les Miserables and cowboy hats, because... Augie Meyer playing Augie Blood is the sheriff chasing our hero Johnny across the West. In about 15 original songs on two records, I move the story forward till he eventually gets back to Ireland, out of prison, back to Ireland, yeah. by singing his way through the old songs. And wow. In a way, as I look at it now, I really didn't, I was so immersed in 50, 60 tracks. I lost sight of what my intentions were, except to do an authentic frontier musical, they call it. Hmm. Now I see that it's 
just another take on the Odyssey, a very standard plot. Hmm. A man leaves home and goes through all this experience, becomes spiritually more alive, and finally goes back home, just like the Odyssey. And oh. uh, all those voices from Johnny Cash to Anna Gabriel to the Swiss Yodel Choir to Dan Penn to Maura O'Connell are the voices he's hearing out of the side of his head as he rides across the West. And my intention was to write an opera with a plot, but to get all these authentic voices into the mix that make up uh, a bigger view of Americana music. Wow, that's yeah. great. Yeah, and and to great effect. I mean, it's uh, gotten all manner of critical praise and... and been acknowledged as one of the best albums of the year and and i think you mentioned earlier talking about trying to sort of broaden and deepen what we mean by the term americana and that was one of the things you wanted to um to sort of address with that record and i think that that certainly came across and it is 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 like this you know sprawling masterwork (laughs) you know um and and so it's just very impressive um for us to look at, you know, how prolific you've been and, and all the songs you've written and the different types of songs to say nothing of your entire second career as a, as a painter, which is, has been, uh, very successful. Um, and it's, it's just really a, an inspiration for us to, to talk to someone who is obviously just bursting with so much creativity, but is also, um, committed to not compromising and, and, you know, forwarding your own vision for your art uh, and your music, and uh, it's it's just an honor for us to have this chance to talk with you. Yeah. Well, it's an honor to talk about it with two guys like you who are not only hip to all forms of songwriting, but have this great show. Whether whether you have opinions, I have opinions, in Nashville, L.A., it all comes down uh, in the bottom level for a love of what we do and a love of the music. Yeah. And in the end, how much one good song can change somebody's life. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much, Tom. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list, so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft. In Apache Pass, Prince Rupert, Jack puts a gun to my head He said, how you like it?